So Satya, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to see you again. Um, let's dive right in. Um, you know, this program is about the new world of work, and there are probably few people who have their finger on the pulse of what what is work and, and, and what are the platforms and the approaches that, that we need to work effectively together than you. So I'm really glad you're here. I, so, you know, the concept of work, how we, how we collaborate together, how we innovate is constantly changing as, as businesses evolve, as technology changes, as employees have different kind of attitudes and empowerments. Where are we on that journey? Um, you know, what is, what is, what does the near-term future of the workplace look like to you? Now, first of all, Adi, it's fantastic uh, to be uh, with you again. And um, you're absolutely right. Um, we are you know, coming out of this pandemic or living through this pandemic in its various stages. I think there's real structural change um, that we are seeing because of what I would describe as two mega trends. Uh, one is the trend around hybrid work, which is uh, a result of the changed expectations of everyone around the flexibility uh, that they want to exercise in when, where, and how they work. Um, and then the second mega trend is what uh, Ryan Roslonsky, who is the CEO of LinkedIn, termed, which I like, which is uh, the great reshuffle. Uh, this is about not only are people talking about when, where, and how they work, but also why they work. They really want to recontract, in some sense, uh, the real meaning of work uh, and, um, and sort of asking themselves the question of where, which company do they want to work for and what job function or profession they want to pursue. So these two, hybrid work and the great reshuffle, are the two major trends that are fundamentally structurally changing uh, I think everything we do, and it has implications obviously for us as a company in terms of what we enable with say the digital fabric that allows for hybrid work, uh, allows even for, for example, things like skills-based hiring and the connections uh, people need to have with their company and other others who work with them. Uh, but yes, it is a, definitely a time of big change. Let me get a sense of your, how you would define flexibility. Because on the one hand, flexibility sounds great. Let individuals, let teams decide how they want to work together, when and in what fashion. But then there are the, the sort of larger corporate company concerns about, well, we want people to be together. We, we want to create and sustain a culture, and that maybe means people need to be together. You know, a little less flexibility on that. So how do you, how do you balance these imperatives? Yeah, I think, first of all, I think we should sort of perhaps just get grounded on what are we seeing in the expectations, right? So for example, uh, when we see all of the data, the reality is close to 70% of the people say they want flexibility. At the same time, 70% also want that human connection uh, so that they can collaborate. So therein lies in some sense that hybrid paradox. Interestingly enough, if you look at the other sort of uh, confounding piece of data is uh, you know, 50-odd percent of the people say they want to come into work so that they can have focus time. 50-odd percent also want to stay at home so that they can have focus time. So the real thing I would say is right now, it's probably best not to be overly dogmatic because I don't think we have settled on the new norms. Uh, these norms have to settle so that then we can have real causal relations 
uh, that settle, and then we can understand what are even the broad contours of productivity, flexibility. But in that context, Ari, to your point, we are taking what I would call a much more organic approach right now. What I would say is what we want to practice and what we want to evangelize is empower, for example, every manager and every individual to start coming up with norms that work for that team, given the context of what that team is trying to get done. And so that means a manager, for example, if I manage a team of five people, I better know, is there people in my team, you know, with young children who have not been vaccinated because the considerations of those parents will be different? What is the childcare situation? The considerations for people who have the need for childcare will be different. Uh, what are the commute times today? So therefore, because the expectation going forward is, I don't think anybody wants to get back to 2019 commute times uh, because now the fact that you can be productive remote. So in some sense, we are really saying, let's just use an organic process to build up through empowerment, new norms that work for the company, to your point, to be productive. Ultimately, we are in business to be able to produce products and services that really our customers love. Uh, ultimately, that'll define the firm and its performance. But I think to also ignore the fact that there is structural change in the way employees produce those products and services and drive productivity, uh, the expectations have changed. So we have to now find that match. So what I'm hearing as you say this is that you probably don't think we're ever going back to the way we worked before the pandemic, number one, and correct me if I'm wrong, and number two, that, you know, the old days, it was, it, there was a temptation to come up with a policy that was consistent and therefore fair. But you're talking about a much more complex job for managers, for, for HR, for everyone in the company to be, as you say, flexible, adapting, not, a, not any kind of one rule fits all approach to talent. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I also would say this, Adi, which is, the economy is a very diverse economy, right? We are talking about even during the height of the pandemic, all the healthcare workers were coming into the workplace, all the retail workers, all the critical manufacturing workers. So to some degree, I want to make sure I stay grounded in my comments that the world and the economy and the society today is much more diverse in terms of its workplace expectations, habits, needs, because we we do need our healthcare you know professionals in the hospitals that we visit and what have you. So that that said, I do think that there is real structural change that with the new tools, right? Even take space. So somebody had described this to me, which I, I love a lot, which is physical space is probably what since the industrial era we have discovered as the best productivity tool. There's no substitute. For 200 plus years, we have tuned of the workplace, whether it's a manufacturing line, whether it's a, a retail outlet, or whether it is knowledge workers coming into an office campus. We have tuned space to drive productivity by bringing people together, having a common sense of purpose, mission, connection, and what have you. I wouldn't trade that off, but can we use space such that it maps to the expectations of custom I mean of our employees and the task at hand. So for example, we are redesigning some of our campus spaces. We will still have our campus. We love our campus. Except the way managers and teams will use our campus will change. They may have, okay, we want to bring everyone together for a design session. 
and when or we want to bring everybody for a crunch time mode uh, in building, say, some some software product. Uh, we want to have orientation. We have a whole bunch of new employees. And when we do that, I think we're going to use space as even a more malleable resource using some of the digital technologies we have. So I think a combination of space and this remote digital fabric that we have established through the pandemic will come together to give us the tools for flexibility. Now, as all of this thinking is happening, it seems to me employees in the last few years, and especially now, probably are more empowered than they have been. I mean, we talk about the great resignation, and that's partly uh, employees feeling like they have opportunities, they have choices, they're making some choices that you know, are forcing us all to respond as, as managers. How do you think about the talent equa equation these days? You know, what, it, what does it take to attract and retain talent, kind of given everything you're saying about, about the evolution of the workplace, the evolution of the concept of, of work? To your point about the, uh, the great reshuffle, at least we, as we talk, talk about it, because the thing is, people are re-evaluating what is their relationship with the company they work for and the relationship with the immediate set of coworkers and their manager. Like if somebody at one, at one point had said to me, nobody quits companies, they quit managers. Uh, I, I felt like that was one of the best you know, epiphanies I had, at least growing up even at Microsoft, uh, that that is such an important statement because after all, it's the people that I work with that keeps me going at a given place. And it's when that equation doesn't work, I look elsewhere for or reevaluate. So to me, the way I think any one of us, uh, we have to really deeply look at what is the lived experience and culture for anyone. And that connection between the company's mission and the individual's mission and philosophy, right? So it's all, I always say, like, if everybody at Microsoft who works at Microsoft reframed it, and said, you know, I don't work for Microsoft, Microsoft works for me, just for a moment, like even just as a thought experiment, does that equation compose? Which is, am I able to fulfill, whether it's my career aspirations, whether it is my, um, you know, approach to having impact in the world, somehow if Microsoft is acting as a platform for that, then it's a very different, I feel connected with the mission. So to me, one of the places where we are very focused on is two points, one is, helping managers really, to your point, recruit and re-recruit and retain talent uh, through a framework we call model coach care, right? Everyday practice of great management uh, is super important. That's on the manager side. Then on the employee side, we're doing everything we can to help employees feel that connection to the company's mission and their coworkers and coworkers both in terms of strong ties and weak ties, right? Because one of the fantastic things about having, let's say, a campus like the Microsoft campus in Redmond, Washington was, you come to campus, you work with your immediate team, those are strong ties. You also run into people who are interesting that you sort of meet and form long-term relationships with, which are weak ties. Unfortunately, in this pandemic, what we've noticed is two data points, which is strong ties have actually gotten stronger the weak ties have gotten weaker. But our job through a variety of software tools is to make those weak ties even stronger. So it's because ultimately it's those human connections that get people to stay in a place. Without that, you know, without the connection to your manager, without the connection to other employees, 
uh, I don't think it would work. So those are some of the considerations, at least, I would think, in the context of this great reshuffle. Talk more about the weak ties, because I think, I think there, those of us who believe those sort of weak tie connections can actually be very important for, for triggering innovation, a sense of culture, collaboration, all that. Talk a little bit more about how you, I think you use the term technology, that, you know, using technology to, to kind of identify and improve those connections. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, in fact, just the, the data point that I was referencing was, I think, you know, in the data we have analyzed across Microsoft 365, is around 26% uh, increase in strong ties. So this is the connection points, whether it's email, whether it's Teams meetings, whether it's any other type of communication inside the team that you work with. Uh, so those are the strong ties. And then the weak ties are people I run into in the water cooler, the people I run into in the elevator, the people I run into walking to the campus, to the bus or what have you. That's the set of places where that serendipity is missing. And so one of the fundamental things that we've done is we have a, a, a tool called Microsoft Viva. It's now the new experience cloud platform, which we are very, very excited about. Like for example, today, uh, I'll tell you one place where I strengthened my weak ties. In any meeting now, I, I observe in chat people commenting that I've never met before, right? In the previous times as a CEO of Microsoft, when I would be in a large meeting, I would you know, obviously hear from people, but there'll be many other people in the meeting who would not speak. But whereas chat has allowed them to voice their opinion. And now, oh, not only do I see their idea, but the interesting thing is I can click on their profile. Guess what, when I click on their profile, I go to this very rich profile in Microsoft 365, which tells me everything from their LinkedIn profile, which is their outside profile, to all of the work artifacts that they are working on, documents and presentations. And one of the things Viva does is it also tells me the projects and expertise they have, right? So it's extracted using AI, a rich internal profile, which to me is, Amazing to me now, I now have like, based on one comment one person made in a meeting, I'm able to learn so much more about this person. So then I may set up a 15 minute Teams call with this person to follow up. So that is a new type of serendipitous dis you know, discovery. It's not just, I didn't run into them in the elevator this time and struck up a conversation, but I met them in an online meeting where they commented uh, in a chat. So that's what we mean by creating software tools and nudges to help with weak ties. Yeah, interesting. So Viva is obviously a product that, that Microsoft offers. Are there any other, or are there any internal platforms that you're experimenting with now that, that you use you know, at Microsoft, and if they're successful, could be future, future products or platforms that you could talk about? Yeah, to me, we're doing a lot of experimentation, but you know, for, we are in the business of productivity, so whatever we are using internally is also an external product. I mean, that's the good news, at least at Microsoft for us, is we do dog food our stuff, but we also uh, ultimately launch things. But the things that I, I would say, like this profile thing internally, like another place which has been super helpful is being at work. For example, internally, I just go to the search well, and that's the place, whether I'm trying to find any person, whether I'm trying to find any document or web. So there's one universal search well. Uh, and that ability to be able to get at the entire knowledge base of the company through one search interface, I think is the massive breakthrough because I've always felt um, that the biggest or most strategic database in a company 
is the knowledge repository of all communications within the enterprise. Uh, and to be able to search that uh, has been just fantastic. Another one that I would say has changed my own experience is meetings now are not just, oh, I go to a meeting and then I have to basically rely on my memory of what happened in the meeting or my rough notes. The, every meeting, in Microsoft is recorded, but taking permission from all the people who are participants, uh, that it's indexed and I can search it by topic, by speaker. And so you know, it's, it's kind of like a do document at that point. So therefore meetings are adding to the knowledge repository of the company. So some, some fantastic, I think that digitization of all of communications and work and turning them into first-class artifacts, I think are going to be a phenomenal uh, difference going forward. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned AI um, a while back. I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how you know companies that aren't necessarily Microsoft, you know, will 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 use AI to kind of power effective results within their workplaces. And maybe, the, you know, I mean, there are probably things you know about AI that we don't know about yet. So I, I love your insights on how, how AI will change the way we work, I guess. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, the, the fundamental way, in simple terms, to think about the power of AI is really to take all of the data that we have and have more, I'll call it, analytical and predictive power without analyzing data in silos or predicting outcomes in silos, right? That's the power. AI has the ability to take structured, unstructured information with especially this emergence of what people describe as large, dense models, which are multimodal. That means there's text in them, there's speech in them, there is uh, images in them, and they're unsupervised, they're very large, and you can now, you can use it for many things, right? I can use it to complete sentences in my email and compose it. I can use it in GitHub Copilot to complete code I write. Uh, I can use it even to do machine translation. So for example, that meetings artifact I talk about, talked about, just imagine if that was a meeting in France, uh, it was in French where people were talking, but it can be transcribed and I can see it in, li in live captions or in real time translated, or I can go to it and really have the ability to search any uh, meeting in any language. So really breaking down the language barrier. So I think AI, is going to show up as that next level of automation, the next level of intelligence slash prediction that is going to be there in our everyday experiences. And so we are building it in. So even from a company perspective, they'll just show up to you as features in products you use. We also are enabling anyone who can build an Excel spreadsheet can also build applications going forward where they can use these AI models as platforms themselves, just like how you could have a formula that could build on somebody else's calculation and formula. That's the same way the composition would work even when it comes to AI. So we all want to know about the metaverse and what that's going to look like. You've used the term, others have used the term, and you know basically it describes kind of a future where we're combining real world with you know, 3D, AR, VR. Um, 
help us really understand. I mean, what 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 are we headed toward a metaverse? Do you think, and 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 what might that look like? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that this entire idea of metaverse, which is fundamentally comes from increasingly as we embed computing in the real world, you can even embed the real world in computing. That's kind of how I think about it. Because in some sense, one of the me metaphors that I always use, which is helpful, is there is both an outside in and inside out, right? For example, you can have a space in which there is lots of cameras uh, and you know microphones, and you can digitize the space. You don't need to wear anything on your head, uh, but you can have intelligence, like in a meeting room, for example, we have now, when you go to a team's room, it will even segment everybody in a conference room into their own square, put them back in a meeting as if they were joining remotely. That way then the remote participant can find people who are even sitting in a conference room, identify them, get their profile and what have you. So that's a great example of how what is physical has become digitized and you have people are still meeting in a physical space and there are people who are remote, but it's all bridged. In fact, we are now, we've gone got, and you're not wearing anything. Uh, and then you can even put on, um, you know, your goggles or like a HoloLens or what have you and go into an immersive meeting where your embodied self with, as a hologram or as an avatar can with spatial audio even relate to others in that space. In fact, we have had a metaverse for a long time called Altspace. Uh, and Accenture is a great example of it. Accenture has been basically built what they describe as the nth floor in all space, uh, where literally anybody across Accenture globally can anytime drop in on the nth floor and meet other Accenture employees. So that concept of being able to be in a virtual space, uh, again, as an avatar, ultimately as a hologram, interact with others, have spatial relationships with others with because of things like spatial audio, I think are just other additional forms of what we've all gotten used to today with video-based meetings. Uh, so video transcending to 2D avatars and 3D immersive meetings is probably a practical way for us to think about how the metaverse really emerges. And that could change everything in terms of, I mean, this imperative to have people physically together for all the benefits that that creates. You know, what you're describing, the types of interactions you would have in this, you know, metaverse setting with or without, you know, fancy goggles and things, you know, that, that's a whole another level. I mean, I, it, it, it makes me wonder if we will rethink how we define the value of being physically together when there are ways to be, you know, hologram interaction or whatever. I mean, it sounds far-fetched probably to most people, but it actually could be a very kind of rewarding, fulfilling interaction that yeah, does I mean, I, I, almost it take absolutely the place of, is. Yeah. It sort of it fills that continuum even more, right? So, for example, in an, one of these immersive sessions, if you're doing whiteboarding, um, whether as as a hologram or as an avatar you have people around you and your whiteboard. It's just a completely different experience uh, than perhaps today the 2D whiteboarding that you have with video streams. Uh, and definitely it's a step towards that physical presence. But I also feel that we should stay grounded, that physical co-presence. Uh, there is no substitute to that. So the bottom line is uh, I look at the continuum of things from email, 
to simple audio calls, to video meetings, to these new immersive meetings and co-presence and design sessions or what have you, to physical meeting, all will give us, to your earlier question, more optionality and more flexibility for how human connection uh, and connectivity can be maintained. So given all these changes that are happening in the workplace or, and as we experiment and return to work and figure it all out, what, I'm interested in the question of leadership. You know, what, is, what does good leadership look like at this very complicated transitional moment? It's a great question. It's the entire ballgame, right? So one of the things I have been struck by uh, is that how important, to your point, good leadership is. And I'll even say good managerial um, to, you know, competence. Um, so one of the things we started stressing maybe a year before even the pandemic was, you know, recognizing that ultimately at Microsoft, we will only be able to shape and continuously reshape the lived experience for our people um, is by having great managers, right? After all, I've learned through my own career that, that you know, being a great manager is sort of, a, you have to learn every day something about great management <coughs> and leadership. So we came up with this framework called Model Coach Care. And it's been just fantastic. You know, model and coach are perhaps sort of more intuitive. Everybody knows that in order to sort of, you know, management or being a leader is a privilege and you have to model what you want uh, out of your team and you have to really be a great coach. But this last piece, care, is the real currency, especially when you have people where you don't have that constant human connection. Uh, that what, what does that care mean? That care means you have to put yourself, have that empathy and to put yourself in the people's shoes that you lead or people who expect who are who, whom you're, you're the manager for. Uh, and then understand all of, not just the pandemic as one tail event that we are all impacted by. The interesting thing is each of us is impacted by some tail event, which is idiosyncratic to us. Uh, but managers who are clued in and care can, in fact, sort of get a sense for it and help us through it. And so to me, that I think is the greatest lesson learned. And the one thing that we have done uh, is to assist in it, right? This is, this, this is not a substitute to great managers and their, you know, motivation to be great managers. But data can help. Behavioral nudges can help. So one of the other tools in Viva is these insights, right? Oh, if I've not had a one-on-one -on -one with some person who works for me, a little nudge saying, hey, you've not really had any communications. Uh, or, oh, here is what, you know, you, you, there is a real issue of wellness and burnout because uh, you have someone who's just not taking breaks. Uh, a nudge there would help. Or when I'm about to send an email over a weekend to my team, telling me maybe you want to send it during working hours. Or we now have this lovely message saying, okay, well, let's just say you can respond during your working hours. You don't need to respond over the weekend. These are things that I actually think can be a, help us be better managers, be more caring for the people we lead, and ultimately, quite frankly, improve firm performance. Um, before I let you go, I'd love to, you know, you're a very sort of thoughtful business leader. And, you know, I, I kind of believe that, that leaders are, you know, they're not born. They, they, they kind of adapt and, and learn, and the successful ones keep learning. 
Uh, you know, I'd love to hear from you a, a, a moment, a crucible moment, if you will, um, in your life and, and your work life that really, I don't know, changed your trajectory or, 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 or was very important in, in your development as a leader. If you're willing to share that, I'd, I'd, you know, our, our audience would Absolutely. love to hear that. To me, um, my, I, I'd say the biggest moment of change, I, if, I, if I could take the liberty of sort of talking about two moments, the first moment perhaps was when I first became a manager, uh, first level manager, where I had five people working for me who all would ask the question, why is this guy leading me? Or why is he my manager? And then I had a manager who had many high expectations of both me as an individual contributor and as a lead, really helped me understand through that hard process of expectations on both ends that what it takes to be a leader, what it takes to be a manager, right? Because it was not like I was just a good IC, I became a manager. And I had to quickly understand, you know, although I have better language for it today, the, what does it mean to model? What does it mean to coach? It's just not, you know, going in and saying, let me complete the work for one of the people. Like, how do I really coach them? But more importantly, in coaching them, how do I learn? Uh, so that I can learn from the diversity of experience on my team to up my game so that I'm then I'm also expect, accepting of all the diverse views. So it's, well, when I look back at it, that first job I had was life-changing in terms of, it, it was, it's impossible to have, before you become a manager, you're not a manager. And so, but when you get that opportunity, I must say it shaped me. The one other thing that happened much later on in my sort of mid-career was this one conversation I had with my boss at that time who said, Satya, you are going to perhaps work at Microsoft, which he turned out to be right, more, you know, for, I mean, close to 30 years at Microsoft. You're probably going to end up working for more time at Microsoft than perhaps even the time you spend with your kids when they're at home. Uh, and so make it more meaningful, like don't make it transactional, invest in the relationships, both with the company's mission and the people. I thought that was a problem. I mean, when he said it, it felt like, oh, what is he saying? Do I understand it? Uh, and I think we, it's, in the, it's, all of, it's in all of us to turn that power from being transactional to where it is much more meaningful because we never want to have, you know, spend most of your life doing something not to have it, you know, accrue to deep meaning. Yeah, that's great. If you have one more minute, we, we tried to solicit questions from our audience, and, you know, this is pre-taped, not live, but we did tell them that, you know, I told them I'd be interviewing you. And so if I can ask one question, this is, it's Lisa from San Francisco who asks, what do you think is the biggest source of innovation and why? Is it diversity, technical skill, humanity, employee equity, something else? Empathy. Uh, to me, what I have sort of come to realize, what is the most innate in all of us, is that ability to be able to put ourselves in other people's shoes and see the world the way they see it. That's empathy. That's at the heart of design thinking. When we say innovation is all about meeting unmet, unarticulated needs of uh, the marketplace, it's ultimately the unmet and articulated needs of people and organizations that make are made up of people. And you need to have deep empathy. So I'd say the source of all innovation is what is the most humane quality that we all have, which is empathy. 
That's fantastic. So, Satya Nadella, I want to thank you for sitting down with us and, and sharing your thoughts and insights. It's, it was great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.